Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 199 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at pavement and on-street charging. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. This particular episode is in partnership with EVA England, the body representing electric vehicle owners in England. See the show notes for membership details and links to their website. Before we start, I wanted to thank you all for listening so far this season. Statistics show that this has been the most successful season of the podcast yet. And as I speak, we are nationally ranked in the UK in the mid-20s for automotive podcasts, which is fantastic. We've got a great roundtable for you next week. Uh, It'll be a bit of a twist on the usual roundtables, but hopefully you'll enjoy just as much. Our main topic of discussion today is pavement charging, or on-street charging or whatever you want to call the charging where units are installed at the side of the road so people who don't have off-street parking can still get an overnight charge. Last season, I did an episode which discussed destination charging, uh, putting in slower, lower-powered chargers, maxing out at 7, 11, or 22 kilowatts at places where people stop regularly, uh, car parks, hotels, airports, park and ride locations, wherever we leave a car for a couple of hours. But I deliberately didn't look at home charging for people who don't have off-street parking. And we've done episodes in the past about companies such as CoCharger and Just Park who provide opportunities to use someone else's charger. These are successful businesses that operate all around the country. But the one thing we didn't discuss was how do people living in an area where there isn't good off-street parking, there's low coverage for companies like CoCharger, and the number of electric cars is quite large. Uh, London is an example, as is Oxford. I have a lot of people who listen to this show who can't charge at home. Podcast co-founder Simon lived for a long while in a third-floor apartment and can't charge. Former guest and friend of the podcast, Maz Shah, is another. Former guest and upcoming roundtable member, ooh, Sarah Sloman, is a third. In fact, I listened to a a webinar recently where half the guests on the panel had no off-street parking. And there are many people in society in similar situations. But anecdotal data is one thing. In reality, what percentage of people can't charge their car at home? So I think the national average, you know, a good rule of thumb figure to, to work to is about 40%. That's Shane Reese, head of marketing at AC charging company Chargy, who provide both lamppost and pavement charges. Chris Pateman Jones from Connected Curb, another AC charging provider, has slightly different numbers. We tend to work with the English housing survey data, which talks about 34% of the population not having a driveway and then a further 28% of the population not being able to um, install a charging point. So maybe they have a place where they can park their car, but it's away from their home. Or maybe they live in a flat where there's dedicated parking spaces, but they don't control the land and they can't put the charging point in there. Data from the RAC indicate that 28% of car owners don't have off-street parking. This is different to the 40% of dwellings without off-street parking because it only takes into account households that actually own a car rather than any dwelling, regardless of whether they have a car or not. 
the key point here is that there is a segment of the population who might have a driveway but can't have off-street parking. It could be due to issues with installing the charger. I mean, some landlords haven't yet seen the light when it comes to EVs. Or it might be that they have a fleet van which comes home with them every night and they just can't be seen to be parking it on the driveway for whatever reason. It might help to understand the profile of someone who can't charge at home. Here's Shane Rees from Chargy again. Really, really wide ranging. We have some of our best customers are fleet drivers. You know, these, these people drive for a living, they do lots of mileage and they, they charge regularly and in, and in large amounts. So yeah, people who move people and boxes around or to, and tools around, those are kind of our, our best customers in terms of their um, average spend value. That seems to be pretty similar around just about the whole country, but there is a wrinkle in this. Income levels. Ironically, areas where people have lower incomes will tend to use charges more than areas with a higher income, but not for the reasons you think. Here's Chris Paintman-Jones again. So what we see across our network now is that we have a number of technically, uh, these are technical terms, so when areas are classified, we have some technically deprived areas that are some of the highest performing charging points on our network. And that's because when you're looking at the, the sites, there are certain characteristics of them. So if you were to have a five-year contract, you might think, well, I'm going to go to High Street Kensington today because the people who live there tend to have enough money they can afford to switch and buy an EV today. If you're looking at over a longer term uh, basis, actually High Street Kensington might be still interesting, but it's not going to be as high priority as you might think if it's a short-term contract. The reason for that is transport links are really, really good. People are often doing what you and I are doing today, working from home, and therefore they might be not commuting quite as much as, as people in other areas. When you tend to go to poorer areas, um, you will often find poorer transport links, therefore greater car journeys, people having to commute greater distances for their work because they may be not be as fortunate to live and work in the same location, or they may have the type of job where they're actually having to drive for work. And therefore, actually, when you look at asset utilization, you can try and bust some of those myths. There are, of course, a lot of people who live in apartment blocks or flats. A lot of these people might have off-street parking, such as Simon, but the parking area has no charging capability. Of course, the other side of that discussion is those who have a house, possibly a terrace, and park on the road outside their house. Former podcast guest and chair of the EVA England, James Court, is in that situation. He lives out in South London in an area with terraced housing and no off-street parking, and he makes do with lamppost charging. Now, on the subject of lamppost charging, one of the key differences between Connected Curb and Chargy is that Chargy have actually installed connectors in lampposts. This means attaching a sturdy aluminium device to the lamppost and ensuring it can work with the Chargy app, amongst other things. Of course, this has implications from a power point of view. You're probably never going to get seven kilowatts on a lamppost charger. And depending on the power rating, you can get a lot less. There's two types of electricity networks in the UK, the, the metered network and the unmetered network. Lampposts are on the unmetered network because you wouldn't, it would just be far too expensive to put a, an electricity meter for every, every lamppost in the country. So uh, they've always, always run that way. And they have a certain amount of power capacity, which is made available to them, which is far higher than, than you need to, to run a, a street light. Uh, it's around 25 amps. But how, how much power capacity is, is dedicated to each individual lamppost really, really varies according to the distribution area that, that you're in. So um, in some places, we have to like dial them down to as low as 
three, three and a half kilowatt hours, uh, kilowatts. And in others, we can run them at uh, sort of five, five and a half kilowatts. It depends on the network operator that you're dealing with and the their view of the the cables in that street. So, yeah, being being able to flex the the power um, the power rating of the individual charge points to match the local circumstances is really important. But from a dwell time point of view, that's not an issue. An, av- an average charging session for us is around about nine hours. So people are plugged in for about nine hours, and most of our charging events happen overnight. So we, you know, we're really trying to replicate that. Uh, convenience of of home charging overnight. Your car your car's fully charged when you need to set off in the morning. So let's talk pricing. Chargey have a dual rate tariff which charges a lower rate of thirty nine pence a kilowatt hour overnight and a higher rate during the day. Last year was a, a crazy time for the energy market. It still is a crazy time for the energy market, but it was particularly particularly bad last year. And to try and keep charging affordable, we we changed to a dual rate tariff. So cheaper overnight and uh, more expensive during the day. Because that fits around the way that most of our customers use our, use our charging network. How can they do that? So it, it's cost reflective. So we've, we've changed our energy purchasing with our, with our energy supplier to be able to unlock that. So it means that we pay less overnight and we pay more during the day. So it, it is a, it's a cost reflective tariff. Um, if you switch to a, an EV tariff at home, very often the same thing happens to you. So you'll get a, a cheaper overnight rate and a, a more expensive day rate. That's changing all the time as the energy companies come back into, into competition. Can Curb have a different philosophy when it comes to pricing? But, but in terms of the pricing model, we are trying to, and I think this is where we are pretty well aligned to the regulations that have come out. We want our price pricing to be as transparent as possible. And so we don't do subscriptions. We um, don't have hidden costs. We have a simple, you pay for the kilowatts that you're using. So at the moment, our price is 50p um, to use the charging points. We increased our price earlier this year after holding our price well below the market for, I think, nine to 12 months after the energy prices um, skyrocketed. Over the over a pretty long period, we've been cheaper than the rest of the market. I think we, it's very, and I think this is one of the reasons why the regulations are so important. We try to benchmark against the rest of the industry. It's very very difficult to do that because there are so many different pricing models out there, and there's so much confusion, and it's very very difficult to work out what other people are charging and whether they're doing it at a nationwide level or whether they're doing it on a charge point basis. As with most CPOs, this doesn't mean they're actually making any money. Yeah, we're, we're not a profitable business. We're a growth business. We're a, a scale-up um, organization. So I think that's expected and our investors are comfortable with that. They see a very clear route to profitability for us, um, which is positive. I think it's important also to look at this in the context of episode 186, where I talked about how tariffs are calculated for charging. Chris told me that they've made some good deals when it comes to advanced purchase agreements for energy, and this has helped them with their prices. But he was also keen to ensure we were comparing apples and apples when it comes to home charging versus public AC charging. The difference I think that people forget is, and not everyone will charge with a proper charging point at home. Some will just use a three pin socket, but they won't be getting the cheaper rates if they're doing that or they're unlikely to be. If they're using a charging point at home, they've had to pay for that charging point to be installed. And I think there's a slightly skewed market because an awful lot of people who've had charging points installed have had that subsidized by central government. 
But now when you're looking to have a charging point installed at home, you're talking minimum 500 quid and probably up to 2000 pounds to have a charging point installed at your home. People aren't advertising that across the kilowatts that they use when they're comparing a 9p rate to a public charging rate. As with all chargers, the one big issue once we have price out of the way is where are they located? There's something of an art as well as a science to this. Shane Reese from Chargy. So that is the practice of working out where you need to install chargers. And then you have some commercial aspects to, to look at. So where's the, where's the physical demand or physical need uh, in total? And then uh, working out where it's going to emerge first and to what degree. Chargy have a large presence in London, obviously. But where would they like to be? Everywhere. <laughs> uh, but mostly, mostly urban areas. So when you look at, you know, so today, almost all of our charge points, uh, about two and a half thousand of the 3000 that we have installed are in London. And that's really for two reasons. One is there's a huge need in, in London. And the other is that the London councils have been well supported by TFL, the Girl Trillow City Scheme, and an organization called London Councils itself in procuring or, or setting up contracts with, um, with charge point operators. Does this mean you won't be putting charges in other places in the country? I mean, if there's a choice between serving, say, Manchester, a big city, or Crewe, a town, which will you go for? We think we have a really viable service, obviously, for big, big cities like Manchester and London and Birmingham. But it also works really well. On-street charging also really works well for smaller towns you know, like Crewe. And we only need a few people around, uh, around one of our charge points for that to be financially viable. Kenningsley Curb are another company that understands the concept of geospatial planning. They've gone a little bit further. What's really positive is our site selection capability, which is an AI platform that we've built. It is quite phenomenal what my digital team have done. I'm incredibly proud of what they've achieved. And I think when you hear uh, our clients, the Geospatial Commission and others talking about what we've built as being um, in, uh, incredibly impressive and market leading, combining both physical and human data together to be able to bust some of the myths in EV around where you should deploy charging points. I'm really, really, really proud of that. But what it's already showing to us is that it's getting better at selecting sites than humans are. So it's getting better at forecasting utilization. This AI platform is an interesting development. Chris is of the opinion that it's much better and fairer than a human would be in the same situation. Plus, it can work quicker than a human. I can see other companies glomming onto that in the future. I also see a potential future episode there, maybe next season. Anyway, given the locations that are being chosen and the tariffs that are being used, what sort of utilization are we looking at? And that's an interesting question. Nobody's really comfortable giving out their utilization figures for charging, although ZapMap and the Green Finance Institute recently did some analysis on ZapMap data and produced figures saying that slow charges, three kilowatts and lower, and fast charges, seven to 22 kilowatts, had utilizations of 13.7% and 15.7% respectively from a time point of view. From an energy point of view, i.e. what percentage of total available energy is dispensed per day, it's 10.3% and 9.2% respectively. Obviously, this is impacted by the usage method. As Shane said, most of their users plugged in overnight. 
This means from a time-based perspective, they would show a higher utilization rate, because you plug your car in and leave it for seven, eight, nine, ten hours, but a lower energy utilization, because your car might be completely full after four hours. The charge stops, but the charge is still connected, meaning nobody else can use it. But this isn't necessarily an issue, as Chris told me. So if I'm a rapid charging provider at the moment, when someone plugs in, in fact, if, I, if I'm any charging provider, bar connected curb, I would argue, when you plug in at the moment, the charging point pumps uh, electricity into your car as quickly as possible. In a rapid charging setting, that's extremely fast. But even in a seven kilowatt setting, you are maxing out as fast as you can possibly do. Unless, of course, you've load managed it or you're restricted by power, but nothing to do with the user experience drives that, um, that flow of power. In a home charging setting, that's totally different. So in a home charging setting, you'll probably be plugging in and you'll be taking advantage of better power prices. So it's all about doing the smartest charge rather than the quickest charge. Across the connected curb charging network in Q1 of next year, we're launching our smart charging capability, which is built on the Agile Streets project that we did last year. Agile Streets project was uh, lauded across the industry, I think, for what it achieved. We demonstrated huge cost savings to the user by essentially shifting the time when they charged and not changing the user behavior at all. That's the beauty of this. I was parked up on a seven kilowatt charger at one of the park and rides in Oxford recently. And because I knew I was going to be in Oxford for the whole day, I knew that my car would be charged within about three or four hours. And it would be parked there for you know, seven or eight or nine hours. So I physically went into the app that came with the car and I derated the current coming into the vehicle so that I wouldn't be pulling the full 11 kilowatts or whatever, uh, so that the I was able to extend the time at which the car was physically charging. And I think what you're basically saying is you've got the same sort of processes in place that will more or less manage that on behalf of the user. Yeah, and just doing it incredibly simply. So instead of you having to go in and do that, we just ask you uh, when you're coming to collect it. Uh, and, then, and then our system can kick in and do the same. The, the other value on it is when you're doing it across a network of 5,000 assets or 10,000 assets or, how, or hundreds of thousands of assets, that has a huge benefit to the grids. Still, I'd be interested to know how many charges each of our guests are dispensing each month. Here's Shane from Chargy. Those, those sorts of figures. I'd say in our, in our space, you know, once you reach like 10% utilization for on average, you should, be, you should be about just about covering your costs. So what's that in terms of charge sessions? I probably can't share our, our, our utilization. I think I'd be killed if I did that. But, you know, I, I can tell you that we are doing about a thousand charging sessions a day right now. And that is rising all the time as we install more charge points and as the people around the charge points that we have installed start to switch to electric cars or notice that there's a charge point in their street and find that more convenient and more affordable than the other options that they were relying on in the past. So um, it's a really fast moving, it's a really fast moving picture. Chris Pateman Jones told me. So um, utilization across a network size, when you're at the size that we're at, certainly, there is such variability from site to site. And that variability is driven by lots of different things. The type of location it is, the access to the charging points uh, and the age of the charging points. So across our network, we've added circa 2000 charging points in less than the last 12 months. And so you have an awful lot of quite young charging points on the network. So that is going to depress utilization because inevitably the type of charging we do when we go and deploy on a street 
if people don't have an EV, they don't just snap their fingers and an EV arrives on, on their drive, or rather not on their drive, on the street outside their home. And that just doesn't happen. So there is always a lag from when we put charging points in. Another aspect to bear in mind when talking about lamppost and curbside charging is the councils. Now, we talked about councils back in episode 138. And in that episode, I found that many of them were not actually receptive to electric vehicles, with only about one in three taking up any form of the on-road charging scheme funding provided by the government. So how do our guests handle conversation with the councils? Chris Payment-Jones from Connected Curb. We're a small organization, so we have to prioritize and focus on where we're going to have success. So in honesty, we haven't spent a huge amount of time with councils who don't think that EV is particularly important. We have worked with the many out there who do think it's extremely important. What I think is really positive is the work that OZEV has been doing um, to basically make it really clear that thinking EV isn't going to happen isn't a viable position to take. And so really spending time to share knowledge with the other councils to try and help them get across it. I think it is also fair though to say that in our space, in our industry, you and I, we live this on a daily basis. And so it seems really obvious to us, but when you're a local councillor and you're wanting to get re-elected, and this is one of a hundred different things that you're thinking about, it's whether it's right at the top of your priority list, it's, it's, it's almost, I think there's an element that we have to go about and educate. We have to give them all of the tools to be able to push back on some of the negativity and we have to really help try and get others to almost educate on our behalf. So one of the things that we've been doing as an organization is running roundtable events that support some of the larger roundtable events that are out there, but really importantly, getting our clients to talk about the challenges of some of the projects that we've done with them. What are some of the issues Shane finds working with councils? Mostly getting permission from the council. So, uh, you know, this, this, is a, this is a wholly new thing for councils to get involved in. They've never had to provide refueling, a refueling service for their residents in the past. Um, Perhaps that's one of the reasons we're in the in the mess that we're in at the moment. But yeah, it's it's mostly getting the permission from the the council to install the charge points. You know, when the conditions are good, we can we can do everything: uh, fund the charge points without any local subsidies, provide the the full the full service from planning where they need to go, installing the charge points, taking care of all the maintenance, the customer service, payments, uh, energy supply, everything. We just need to get the the councils on board. But it's fair to say that not all councils are the same when it comes to EV adoption. You are right. There is a difference across councils. They're all now required to have a strategy on EV, and that's a real positive. But you could have a strategy for deployment of 10 charging points, or you could have a strategy for deployment of 100,000 charging points. They're both strategies, but one is a lot more ambitious than the other. So I think, uh, again, not naming and shaming, but I'd like to see a little bit more holding up of the huge success stories that are out there. So the Surreys, the West Sussexes, the Cambridges, the Coventries. I mean, Coventry is an incredible story. We're going to have, I think we're going to have 1,600 charging points in there by March. It's the poorest major city in the UK. And outside of London, there's nowhere else that's got more charging points. There's some phenomenal things that are, that are taking place out there. But yeah, there are some laggards, but I think most of them are being brought to the table now, which is really positive. This year saw the adoption of the Public Charge Point Regulations 2023, which mandate, amongst other things, 
contactless chargers on any unit with a higher than 8 kilowatt output. I was curious what effect that would have. I mean, I always want to see greater understanding of the nuance in our industry. So an 11 kilowatt charging point now that is on a residential street will require contactless payment technology in it. I don't think in honesty that that makes sense because the people on that residential street are going to be using the charging point regularly, habitually, and based on all of the data we see on RFID at the moment, the vast, vast, vast majority will be using the app for it. So it's almost a cost that you add into the charging point that doesn't necessarily deliver a huge amount. In car park settings though, I think you can almost argue the opposite. You're going to have high visitor numbers. Um, you might get some habitual behaviors, but you will get higher visitor numbers. And so actually contactless probably makes sense in an awful lot of the, the charging types, regardless of their speed. So I think it varies. So, I, so I'd love to see that nuance, but I recognize that it is highly complex for the government to sort of enforce. So I think it's probably a pragmatic position where it is at the moment. We are working on our contactless solutions at the moment. There's lots out there. So we're testing and trialing a number. We expect to have that. In fact, I think we've got it now, um, but we expect to be just starting to deploy those in very small numbers um, in Q2 probably of next year. So well ahead of the requirement in terms of the regulations. Obviously across our rapids, um, there's contactless in place already. So I, I think it's, it's not a bad situation the way it's, the way it, where it's come out to. I think it would have been the wrong position if it had stayed as it was of, of seven kilowatts and upwards. And so I think the move that they've made to move it to above eight kilowatts is probably sensible. Was there ever a discussion to say, well, we'll derate all our charges down to seven kilowatts rather than have to go through the expense of adding contactless to eight kilowatt and higher? I think we had, we had some pretty robust discussions, but we never got into a threatening position. I don't think that's ever uh, helpful. I think what we tried to do instead was to recognize why the government was doing it. And that was because essentially, I think the industry had taken advantage to a degree of just having apps all over the place that didn't really deliver a huge amount of value to customers, but rather just um, took advantage of, you get the customer on your app, it's, there was a proliferation of them and they weren't really delivering a huge amount of value. I think, as you can see from what we're trying to do with our smart charging tariffs and everything else, that we're trying to really take advantage of what a digital connection with a customer gives you and gives them. And if you do that, I don't think the government can have any problems with uh, trying to encourage people to use apps. But I think, so we tried to spend most of our time not threatening, but explaining why it was just adding costs with no benefit. It's not that you, it's not that, I mean, hopefully you will see and the people listening to this and the government has seen that we're an innovative organization. We want to try and drive innovation and new technology into the system. It's not about us not wanting to do that. It's about you're trying to do that at the same time as deploying a long life infrastructure which is as affordable as possible for anyone at the point when they connect into it. So trying to remove things that are superfluous and don't add value is a key part of that. So where does that leave us? I think there's no doubt that while we have a large proportion of EV drivers and potential EV drivers without the ability to charge from home, we need some innovative solutions. Lamppost chargers are a specific solution that work very well in certain circumstances. Shane talked about the fact they have a lot of excess capacity in each one, allowing them to work well in places where the power running around that particular ring is good, so cities and suburbs. When you get out to some of the more rural places, that solution isn't ideal. The destination charging episode from last season talked about solutions for people who want to charge while they park, at work, at the cinema, while shopping, while on holiday. 
But there's this last tranche of people who will need charging available at or near their houses. They might not need to charge all night, every night, but they will need to charge some of the time on some of the nights. With companies like Connected Curb installing 2,000 charge points in the last 12 months alone, and both Chargey and Connected Curb using some innovative geospatial planning, with AI in Connected Curb's case, to identify the optimal place to put chargers, things are looking up. But the fact is that councils, in certain instances, will be a bit of a bottleneck. As we've said many times before on this podcast, a charge point operator can't just throw a charger in wherever they want. They need a landlord willing to work with them and planning permission to do so. Pavement charging, a lot of that comes from the local councils. Chris Payment-Jones discussed the fact that while all councils have an EV strategy, there are those who are effectively paying lip service to the strategy and those like Oxford, Nottingham, Dundee and Coventry who are going for this in a big way. And it's things like that that will affect how many charges you get on your street. My thanks to Chris Payment-Jones from Connected Curb and Shane Rees from Chargey for coming on and answering my questions. Next season, we'll look at options that allow you to use your own power supply to charge at the pavement level, even if you don't have off-street parking. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with you listeners. A little left field, this one, but one of the fastest growing jobs in the US pays up to $103,000 a year without a college degree. If you've just left school and you don't fancy waiting tables, delivering Amazon parcels, or doing any of the myriad other jobs, why not try something a little different? Wind turbine service technician roles. They're well paid, need minimal education, and in demand, with employment in the sector expected to almost double over the next decade. Of course, there's a downside. Candidates must be willing to endure extreme weather, and lug 50 pounds of gear up long ladders uh, to confined spaces. But you'll get paid to travel across the continent. Not a job for everyone, but it's great to see renewable energy jobs on the US list of America's fastest growing jobs ahead of nurse practitioner, data scientists, and statisticians. Forward now from our sponsor ZapMap about their expansion to mainland Europe. ZapMap, the UK's number one charge point app, has taken its first step outside of the UK and the Republic of Ireland and has started mapping charge points in mainland Europe. Electric car drivers travelling to the continent can now use the ZapMap's app and desktop map to search for and filter certain charge points in France, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. From ZapMap's 2023 EV driver survey, we know that around 18% of ZapMap users travel abroad typically to France, with the past year seen a 28% increase in people travelling to mainland Europe in their EV. At this stage, ZapMap is displaying selected high-powered charge points in the five European countries in order to help UK drivers charge their electric vehicle quickly and easily while road tripping in mainland Europe. The ZapMap team recently took the app on a test drive, travelling from Cardiff to Amsterdam for fully charged life relying on nothing but ZapMap to discover charge points on a variety of networks across France, Belgium and the Netherlands. So if you're travelling to Europe in your EV, be sure to use ZapMap to help you on your journey. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. 
If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at info at evmusings.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingTV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. Takes Apple Pay too. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want something to read on your Kindle. So, you've got an electric. It's available on Amazon worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So, you've got renewable. It is also available on Amazon for the same 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at Musing TV with the words, standing by the lamppost. Hashtag, if you know, you know, nothing else. Thanks, as always, to my co-founder, Simon. You know, his latest YouTube stats for the year have just come through, and I think he's doing very well with these unicycle videos. However, his year-on-year -year growth hasn't been as good as he expected, though. His exact phrase was, below average. I wasn't sure what the average was in his niche, so I asked. So I think the national average, you know, a good rule of thumb figure to, to work to, is about 40%. Thanks for listening. Bye.